We shall meet face to face someday, or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking 38s. Whatever, if I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam's life, and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at the next job. Or, should I say you will see my handiwork at the next job? Remember, Miss Loria, thank you. In their blood and from the gutter, Sam's creation, 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector police by NCIC. The Duke of Death, the wicked king with him. The 22 Disciples of Hell. John Weed. Rapist. Suffocator of young girls. P.S. J.B. Please inform all the detectives working the slaying to remain. P.S. J.B. Please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging. Drive on. Think positive. Get off your bucks. Knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working on the case a new pair of shoes. If I can get up the money. Son, son, Hello, and welcome to the Deathcast. I am your host, best-selling independent author, Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me again as we prepare to take our third and final look at the Son of Sam killings. 
before we get into that, however, I have the usual plugs. If you'd like to follow me on social media, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and MeWe at Author Ian Tot. If you would like to purchase my books, you can find them on Amazon.com. Just search Ian Totten, or you can go to my website, Corpse Creek Press. You can find autographed copies of the latest two for sale there. You can also sign up for my mailing list there and find out what else is going on in my world. A few quick shout-outs and plugs. I would like to thank Chris Orme, I think that's how you say his last name, for messaging me on Facebook and letting me know about a technical issue with the show on various podcast platforms. It seems a few of the episodes got their files switched somehow, so I had to go back and manually re-up the older episodes. So I want to thank you for that, Chris like to thank Aaron for leaving a five-star review for the show on Apple Podcasts. He said, perfect, Ian is the best. Should be on CBS, and I tell you right now, Aaron, you're damn right about that. Those who are unaware, this is an inside joke, as my last book, The Throwaway Girls of Olympia, was featured on a CBS affiliate out of Nevada. The Aaron's busted my balls there. You'd like to have your review read on the air. Go to Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. I do look from time to time during the week and I will read it on the air. Lastly, our book of the week by a good friend of mine by the name of Alistair Cross. It's called The Black Wasp. It is the third in his Crimson Cove series of books. Crimson Cove books are about a town that is infested with vampires. I'm about halfway through the first book now. I've read Alistair before. He's a very skilled talented writer who has a very poetic lean to his words. So if you're into that kind of thing, just go to Amazon and search for Alistair Cross. He's got a bunch of books out. Or you can look for the Black Wasp, book three in the Vampires of Crimson Cove series. All right, now that the plugs are out of the way, I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Sit back in a chair, chill out, relax. Let's go into the crypt. When we last left off was August 10th of 1977. David Berkowitz, and if you'll remember, this was following about a days-long unofficial stakeout of Berkowitz apartment complex in Yonkers, New York. The police had illegally searched Berkowitz's car and found a legal rifle as well as a handwritten note proclaiming him to be the son of Sam 
stating that he was going to go on a shooting spree. Naturally, the capture of a suspect in this case was huge nationwide news, and Berkowitz's face graced television screens and newspapers across the country. Pretty much every image of Berkowitz from this period of time, he has this very eerie, smug smile on his face, and these half-lidded, almost stoned-looking eyes. So now, before we dive into the subsequent events of Berkowitz's arrest, uh, he was born Richard David Falco on June 1st, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. His mother, Elizabeth Broder, grew up in an impoverished Jewish family and was also a waitress. Elizabeth ended up getting married to a man by the name of Tony Falco in 1936, and Falco ended up leaving her after less than four years. 1950, she began a relationship with a married man named Joseph Kleinman, and three years after that, she became pregnant with the child who would become David Berkowitz. After giving birth, she put the child up for adoption, and there's really no known reason why she gave up Berkowitz, but it has been speculated that her reasonings were that uh, Kleinman threatened to abandon her if she kept young David. He ended up being adopted by Earl and Nathan Berkowitz, who lived in the Bronx. They were a Jewish couple who owned a hardware store, and they're the ones who renamed the young baby as David Berkowitz. And by all accounts, he was a fairly intelligent child. Some say that he had above average intelligence, but he quickly lost interest with learning and began stealing things and starting fires. Many who had known him during his childhood said that he was spoiled, rotten, difficult to deal with, and a bully. Now, when Berkowitz was 14, his adoptive mother died from breast cancer. By all indications, he had a strained relationship with the elder Berkowitz from this point on, as his father remarried and David did not like his stepmother. After graduating uh, high school in 1971, he joined the United States Army and was stationed in Fort Knox with an infantry division that eventually saw him transferred to South Korea. I'm not going to get into all of Berkowitz's military service, to, except to say that it was noted by a number of individuals that when he came back from being in the service, his personality had changed drastically. Sometime after getting honorably discharged in June of 1974, Berkowitz discovered that he had been adopted, and apparently this had some rather adverse effects on him uh, 
with one forensic anthropologist describing it as a primary crisis in his life that really upended his sense of self and identity. He ended up getting in contact with his birth mother, and they had some communication off and on, as well as with Berkowitz with his half-sister, but eventually uh, his birth mother rejected him, and some have stated that this may have been what drove him to eventually commit murder. It's kind of fractured his psyche that this woman who had given him up for adoption came back into his life only to turn around and reject him for a second time. From 1974 until roughly 1976, Berkowitz bounced around from jobs. Uh, When he first got out of the army, he was a taxi cab driver, and he was living at home at this point, and eventually it became too much for him living with both his adoptive father and his stepmother, and he moved out and lived in a series of apartments before settling outside of the city, I believe in White Plains, and he lived there for a while, and initially he was rather a model tenant. He was a boarder at the home of an older couple, but eventually Berkowitz began showing signs that something was wrong with him, and accounts differ as to whether he was asked to leave the house or he just moved out on his own. But in any event, he ended up moving to Yonkers in the apartment that he would end up living in at the time of his arrest. And if you believe the conspiracy theorists, it was during this period of time, you know, 74 to 76, that he first came in contact with and eventually joined the cult that was ultimately responsible for the Son of Sam killings. I know you're thinking, oh god, conspiracy theories. Well, there is a lot of evidence that actually supports this, most of which was dug up by an investigative journalist by the name of Maury Terry. And there is so much evidence that numerous members of both the mainstream media and alternative media, as well as the New York City Police Department, believe it to, in fact, be the case. So much so that the Son of Sam case was eventually reopened by Yonkers' uh, police commissioner because he, he really thought that there was something to this. So this isn't one of those conspiracies that could be dismissed out of hand as being, you know, completely unfactual or a pipe dream at, say, like, you know, the lizard people would be. There's no real evidence for that. This particular theory actually has legs, and you can do some research real quick online and find out all about it. I'm going to be getting into it a little bit later on. Anyways, at the time of his arrest, Berkowitz was working as a mail sorter for a local post office. After being brought to one police plaza in Manhattan, it wasn't long before the police were able to get a confession from Berkowitz. In fact, he was all too happy to take credit for the crimes, something that the police really had not been prepared for. 
you know, they were thinking that he was going to balk at the idea of admitting to his crimes and what have you, but that wasn't the case. Berkowitz readily confessed. Now, unfortunately, a good number of his, the details in his confession are... Um, they're not consistent with the known facts of the crimes. A couple of which I'm going to go over very briefly. Uh, witnesses to at a number of the crime scenes describe somebody who looked and sounded like someone other than Berkowitz, and the police actually settled on the idea that he was wearing a wig when he committed some of the crimes. A uh, fact that Berkowitz stated in his initial confession was not true. He was not wearing a wig. This is important because at a number of the shootings, an individual was seen running away with much lighter hair than Berkowitz, and this individual was also both taller in some accounts and shorter than Berkowitz in other accounts. Again, he's not a big guy. I mean, he's fairly stocky, but as far as height goes, I believe he's somewhere between the 5'7 to 5'9 range, which does not account for an individual who is 6' plus taller being seen at a number of the shootings. He also did not drive a Volkswagen Beetle. Again, this is important because a Beetle was seen at a number of the crime scenes. And he stated that he had never had a Beetle, nor had he had access to one. If you'll remember, a Volkswagen Beetle was seen fleeing the crime scene a number of times, most importantly the last set of shootings. So anyways, Berkowitz, you know, there was a real media firestorm surrounding both his capture as well as his confession, and the police were more than ready to take every single thing that he had stated at face value rather than delving into them further. The reason for this is obvious. They wanted to close this case that had really put the city in a panic for, you know, the last year and a couple of months. Which, on the one hand, I can understand because you want to clear these cases off the books as well as reassure the public. But on the other hand... There was so much evidence available stating that others were involved. You would think that the police would at least have done a cursory investigation to see if this was in fact the case, but they did not. Which is really rather unfortunate because, you know, like I said, the theory that others were involved in these murders is a strong one. There's a lot of evidence that, you know, supports it. More evidence supports it rather than the lone gunman theory. For all intents and purposes, if you are one of those who believe that others were involved, as I am inclined, it means that other people committed murders and got away with it scot-free, and one individual was left to take the fall for all of them. Now, there are those who disagree that, you know, Berkowitz had conspirators in the shootings, one of which was Detective Paul Coffey. If you don't know who Paul Coffey is, 
He looks and acts like Clint Eastwood in Dirty Harry, the only difference being he's a very arrogant individual who comes off as somewhat of a prick. I've seen interviews with him and just watching him and listening to him as well as reading his book, The Coffee Files, he really comes off as somebody who believes that everything he did was correct and that his shit doesn't stink. And this was a prevailing attitude throughout the detective division of the New York City Police Department. A lot of those guys had that same type of attitude of you know, we're the greatest thing going as far as what it is that we do, and our work is impeccable, so don't second-guess it. Very similar, in fact, to the Atlanta task force that was set up for the Atlanta missing and murdered children, which I covered earlier this season, in that any dissenting opinion or evidence to the contrary is scoffed at by those who were involved in the case. And much like Atlanta, the New York City Police Department really didn't have anything to go on for these shootings. And when a suspect became apparent, they jumped all over it and discounted anything else that was outside of the purview that this is the guy. And I'm not saying that David Berkowitz was railroaded or innocent by any stretch of the imagination. He was obviously involved in the shootings. He is admitted to being involved in the shootings as well as he also owned a Charter Arms Bulldog 44. Interesting bit of information, however, is that the police were unable to prove that the charter arms that Berkowitz owned was in fact the murder weapon in the shootings to the exclusion of all others. And this was because the bullets that were found, retrieved from the crime scenes were so deformed and damaged it was impossible for them to link it to any gun. It's also important because a number of other characters involved in this story, who I'm going to dive into after Berkowitz, also owned Charter Arms Bulldogs. Berkowitz ended up, uh, against the advice of his counsel, pleading guilty to the crimes and getting sentenced to life in prison without, I believe, without the possibility of parole. But that wasn't the end of things. See, he, had been, he was in a, a psychiatric ward for a little while, and reporters were able to get a mole who worked inside of the psych unit to con- converse with Berkowitz and get tapes, as well as take photographs of him. And this actually led to the New York City Police Department filing charges against one of these reporters who was tied in with Maury Terry because he had convinced a number of other reporters that there was a bigger story here that it was not possible Berkowitz could have done this by himself. Uh, There's a very famous story. I think it was from the New York Daily Post, but I might be mistaken on that. 
uh, with a picture of Berkowitz sleeping inside his room at the psych hospital under the title of Sam Sleeps. And this is what really sparked the whole outrage among the New York City Police Department. Again, you know, I'm going to bash on the NYPD a little bit here again. You know, they're a very arrogant group of individuals, especially at that time. And they were a very controlling lot who wanted control of all information disseminated about this story as well as others. So they really took the extra step to try and prove a point regarding Berkowitz and reporters basically saying, you print what we tell you to do, not what you want. Uh, And they ultimately lost the case. So while Berkowitz... You know, all of this is going on. Berkowitz is languishing in jail. Maury Terry, the journalist, he continued digging deeper into the Son of Sam because of the inconsistencies in both Berkowitz's confession uh, as well as the facts of all the various shootings. And the first thing he did was he took the letters that had been sent to the newspaper and to the police and he really started combing over them and he found some really interesting things tied to these letters. There was a lot of hidden meaning inside the wording of the letters. At some point during all of this Berkowitz told a reporter When I killed, I really saved many lives. You will understand later. People want my blood, but they don't want to listen to what I have to say. A couple of the messages that Maury Terry found inside the Son of Sam letters, particularly the letter to Jimmy Breslin, are that an aqueduct, the Croton Aqueduct, ran between the Carr household, Sam Carr that is, and Berkowitz's apartment. And the reason why this plays into our story is that a number of German shepherds were found prior to, during, and after the murders. And this aqueduct ran back to Untmeyer Park. Huntmeyer Park was a big area that had been owned by, I believe, a lawyer named John Huntmeyer. He had kind of turned it into his own paradise on Earth with statues and gardens, and when he passed away, he willed it to the borough. And eventually, the city sold off parts of it and kept part of it, and it fell into disuse And what ended up happening was, again, this is, a lot of this is hearsay. People said that they saw satanic activities inside the park at night. Torches moving through the woods. And Terry actually found an old water house that had a number of satanic markings and at least from what the pictures show what looked like a makeshift satanic altar as well as traces of blood. 
and a number of people came forward to him, to Terry that is, and said that they had seen these individuals in the park moving about. One individual said that they actually drew pictures of them, and this person, whose name escapes me, came forward to the media with this information. Now, this isn't conjecture or, you know, part of the satanic panic. This actually predates the satanic panic. But police in the area also knew that, you know, quote-unquote Satanists were active in the park and were sacrificing dogs. In fact, the police department actually had a cult division dedicated to, you know, sniffing this kind of stuff out. So, when Terry found out about all of this, naturally, it fed into this idea that was forming in his head. But as he looked into the letters, a couple of other things jumped out at him, especially when he really started looking at the area of Yonkers that Berkowitz had lived in. One of these was the term Wicked King Wicker. Well, looking into the area, as well as, you know, people in the neighborhood, Terry found that the Carr family, headed by Sam Carr, lived on Wicker Street. The 22 Disciples of Hell, Terry eventually came to believe, were was the cult itself. Uh, John Wheaties, if you remember the line, John Wheaties, raper, rapist and suffocator of young girls, well, after doing some digging, he found a name in a phone book for a John Wheaties car. Who it so happens was the son of Sam Carr, which would make John Carr the son of Sam. But there was more to it than that. After talking to some neighbors, he learned that Sam Carr was either an alcoholic or pretty close to it, and he had a fairly foul temper and was known throughout the neighborhood to, you know, beat his children and lock them in the attic if they misbehaved. Now, on top of all of that, John Carr had a brother named Michael who was something of a graphic designer, and if you remember correctly, it was speculated that the individual who had done the Son of Sam letters, at least the first one, possibly had a drafting and design background. And I'm sure you're thinking, you know, about the cars, you know, we heard that name, but it's not ringing a bell. Well, the woman who led police to David Berkowitz was the Carr brothers' sister, Wheat Carr. And it was also said around the neighborhood that the brothers had more than a passing interest in Satanism, with one friend going on to say that he had seen a symbol similar to the Son of Sam symbol that was written at the end of the Breslin letter, being drawn by John Wheat Carr prior to the murders, and the letter being received. Now, again, I'm not going to delve into all of 
Lori Perry's uh, investigation because, you know, a one-hour episode of a podcast is nowhere near long enough for me to cover all of it. In fact, if you really want to look at it, Netflix did a series on it called Sons of Sam, which is fairly good, but the Opperman report posted by Ed Opperman, he has quite a few episodes up on the Son of Sam cult that are absolutely fascinating. And while I don't agree with everything that is in those episodes, particularly how this cult is tied into the Atlanta child murders, there's a lot of good information there, whether it's, you know, something you're honestly interested in or, you know, just for enter- entertainment purposes. Anyways, the Carr brothers, about six months after Berkowitz was arrested and imprisoned, things began to happen. Remember, Maury Terry was an investigative journalist, and basically what that meant at that time was he was not working for any one paper specifically. He was working with for whoever would pay him to do stories. Well, he was keeping a fairly close eye on the Carr family household, and lo and behold, a yellow car appeared in the car driveway during the winter of 77-78. And he was able to conclude that this vehicle belonged to John Wheaties' car. Fast forward a little bit, John Carr was in the Air Force, and he was stationed out in Minute, North Dakota. Well, one night, February 17th, 1978, John Carr was found dead in his girlfriend's apartment, the result of an apparent suicide, and a lot of police police officers in minute don't believe it was a suicide. They think that the gun was far too long for him to have been able to shoot himself in the head the way that that he did. In fact, they believe he was murdered. And there's a good amount of speculation on this as to why, you know, Carr died. Could he have been about to, you know, blow the lid on the Colt? Or had somebody just decided that he knew too much? Uh, but at any at any rate, it was he was dead. Round about this time, the police in Minot, North Dakota, received a book from David Berkowitz in prison. Now, mind you, this is independent of everything that Maury Terry was doing. So it's not like Berkowitz knew Terry was, you know, investigating this line. In fact, when the book was mailed, Terry was just starting to, you know, look into the cars. But he, anyways, Berkowitz mailed a book on witchcraft or black magic uh, to a sheriff in Minot, North Dakota, with a number of pages, you know, underlined and highlighted and words written into the margins on some of the pages. One of which was Arliss Perry hunted, stalked, and slain. 
followed the California Stanford University. Now, despite the current narrative that this was a widely reported case, outside of California, specifically Stanford, the Arliss Perry slang was not widely reported by any stretch of the imagination. It was overshadowed by many other things. It was really just a, you know, if it made it to the East Coast at all, it might have been a blurb on a back page in a newspaper. So, to say that it was widely reported on is an absolute fallacy. For those who are unaware, Arliss Perry was a 19-year-old woman who was married to Bruce D. Perry, and they were both from North Dakota. And Bruce Perry is now an American psychiatrist who specializes in child trauma, and he's fairly well-renowned. Arliss... Uh, had moved out to Stanford to be with her husband while he, you know, continued to go to school and worked on his doctorate. And on the night of October 11th slash 12th, 1974, the two of them had had an argument and she decided to go for a walk on the grounds of school and her husband insisted on going with her and apparently this caused a little bit of friction between them because Arliss was looking to, you know, cool off, and she ended up leaving her husband to go into the chapel on the school grounds. Bruce ended up going back to their apartment, and after a while, when his wife had not returned, he contacted campus security, and they eventually contacted the Stanford Police Department. When the chapel was checked, it was found that the building was locked. Fast forward the next morning, a security guard by the name of Stephen Blake Crawford contacted the police department and said they needed to get over to the chapel. He had found a body inside of the church, and when police arrived, they found Arliss lying face up with her hands folded across her chest and an ice pick sticking out of the back of her head, although the handle had been broken off and was never found. They also found signs of strangulation, and Arliss was naked from the waist down with a three-foot-long altar candle inserted up into her vagina and another place between her breasts. Initially, Crawford was a suspect, but the case ended up going cold. And upon learning about the case, Maury Terry suspected that Crawford was not only involved, but was involved in the occult just because of what had been done to the young lady's body. Terry looked into the Perrys and discovered that somebody had taken out a phone listing under Bruce Perry's name on the Stanford campus. However, it was not linked to the real Bruce Perry. Now, a number of people had been in the chapel on the evening of 
Arliss's murder, with one stating that they saw a young man who was about to enter the church around midnight. He had sandy-colored hair and was not wearing a watch, was of medium build, and stood about 5'10". Fast forward a few years, and Maury Terry, who, as I think I stated a moment ago, claimed he believed that Crawford was involved in the case and was also involved in, you know, the Satanic Underground. Fast forward a number of years to 2018, and Crawford, the security guard who claimed he had found Harry's body, was conclusively linked to her murder following DNA tests, and on June 28th, when police arrived at Crawford's apartment in San Jose, California, which is about 20 miles from Stanford, with a search warrant, Crawford locked his door and committed suicide with a pistol before he could be arrested. Back to Mignette, however, um, Terry was in contact with the police out there. He went out there and spoke to them interviewed them, uh, saw the actual crime scene photos. I believe he was allowed to actually go inside the apartment that John Carr died in. And he talked to another number of people in the area, and they all basically said the same thing, that Carr was involved in, I believe, drug smuggling as well as in a cult. It was around this time, too, that he started looking to the other brother, Michael Carr, who was, you know, a draftsman. He did various forms of advertisement. Michael Carr ended up dying in a car wreck under what some had said were suspicious circumstances. Although, unlike some other cases I've covered, I've never actually seen a police report uh, stating that the circumstances were suspicious. Another line of inquiry that Terry was able to draw involved the Borelli letter. Um, According to Terry, and I have no way to prove this as I haven't specifically done research on that, this particular aspect of the case, the word uh, behemoth is depicted in the occult as an elephant. And... Apparently, the word elephant in Latin is elephus. Now, if you'll remember, the elephus disco in Queens is where the shooting occurred. Also of note is the following line in the Borelli letter, after it mentions the term behemoth, it says, Wimon of Queens. So Terry read this to mean that they were telegraphing their next target before actually committing the crime as behemoth is elephant and elephant is elephants and queens is where it took place. He was also able to find the son of Sam symbol on an occult book cover called the Book of Ceremonial Magic written by a man named Eliphas Levy. Inside this symbol on the cover was the word Berkale, and 
Amsarak. Apparently, Berkowitz's nickname was Burke, as in Burke Hale. They, they were able to find the name Sam Carr inside the other word, which, you know, really pushed Terry onward in his desire to figure out this entire Gordian knot. And for Terry, it actually became all-consuming to the point that it was his entire life and his marriage ended in part over it. Terry ended up drawing a lot of lines from the Son of Sam cult to other murders, including that of Roy Raiden, who was a pretty sleazy character from uh, Long Island that ran a series of, you know, half-baked vaudeville revival acts across the country. Berkowitz himself actually said that Menser had been a member of this cult, and it has been true proven that he had ties to the drug world, uh, which, you know, can be tied into John Carr and his supposed drug running. Some people have said that Menser was a associate of Charles Manson, which goes further into the, you know, satanic cult theory. Uh, some people believe that aspect of it. I personally don't. But Terry believed it and thought that Menser, you know, had gone to New York and participated in some of the killings. In fact, when he was able to actually talk with Berkowitz. Berkowitz confirmed some of his theories uh, and some of his ideas and has even stated publicly in the years since his incarceration that he was involved in a satanic cult and that this cult had nationwide reach and was involved in other murders, although he has refused to talk further on it, stating a fear for his family's well-being even though his uh, adoptive parents have both passed away, he still refuses to talk about it. The group that Terry linked to the Son of Sam cult was an organization known as The Process, or as they were later known, The Process Church of the Final Judgment, a group from... England, who had been tied into Scientology before being expelled by L. Ron Hubbard, at which point they traveled to California and then down to Mexico, only to go back to California. Again, uh, Ed Opperman has a series of shows on the Process Church that are extremely fascinating. Uh, by all accounts, they were a bunch of nut jobs who believed in black magic and ritualistic killings. They were known to keep and breed Alsatian dogs, or more specifically, German shepherds. They splintered at some point, and Terry believed that one part of them is what had gone on to continue to do the killings. The other part 
ended up becoming a fairly well-known dog rescue known as the Best Friends Animal Society. So the gist of the entire thing is that Maury Terry believed that David Berkowitz was involved in this satanic cult and in his book, The Ultimate Evil, he gives aliases to a number of individuals that he refused to name and refused to name even up until his death that he said were uh, members of the cult, including a Yonkers police officer. He also said that Berkowitz was uh, picked to take the fall for the cult after he got the ticket and was basically, you know, coached to recite the whole story that he gave about a talking demonic dog, Sam Carr's dog. Uh, telling him what he needed to do and how he needed to go out and kill people, which Berkowitz himself, a few years after his arrest, said that was a bunch of uh, bull. I was actually in a satanic cult. No dog ever spoke to me. Berkowitz himself, however, did state that both Michael and John Carr were involved in the satanic that he was a member of, and John Carr actually resembles uh, one of the suspect sketches from one of the shootings, but where Terry and I differ is that he believed that after the Son of Sam killings concluded with Berkowitz's arrest, the Process Church had fled down to Atlanta at which time they began the Atlantic Child Murders. And I'm not going to say I'm an expert on the Atlanta Child Murders, but I have done a whole lot of research. I've read FBI files on the killings, uh, numerous news articles, police reports, beyond the West Memphis 3 case and Jimmy Seville, it's probably the case that I am most well-read on. I did a lot of research on that case. I don't see anything linking the Process Church and, by extension, the Son of Sam cult to the Atlanta Child Murders. And I think at that point, you know, he was... Maury Terry was really reaching. Trying, you know, in his fevered mind to solve this entire thing to things into each other. Again, there's just no solid concrete evidence linking the two uh, that I have ever seen. Whereas there is corroborating evidence that multiple individuals were involved in the Son of Sam. Now, if you would like to learn more about this cult... Uh, and even the rest of the theory, you know, the parts that I kind of glossed over and discounted, I can't recommend Maury Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil, enough. It was just re-released after being out of print for a number of years. And even if you're not a believer in the theory, 
it's still a dang entertaining whodunit type read. And it's available on Amazon everywhere else that you, you know, get your reading material. Most bookstores have it. It's a fairly thick book. I want to say it's five or six hundred pages, so it's not something you're going to sit down and blow through in an evening. It's one of those books that, at least for me, I had to read it in pieces, you know, and then take a little bit of a break to digest, but it was such a compelling narrative that I found myself you know, jumping right back into it at the earliest opportunity. I think I am going to call it here. We've got a massive thunder and lightning storm brewing outside right now, which is kind of apropos to what I've been talking about for the last 30 minutes. You know, a satanic cult that sacrificed animals and then went on a killing spree. I hope you enjoyed my look at the Son of Sam case, and will forgive me if I, you know, went too fast in certain areas concerning the conspiracy. I promise the next case that we covered won't be a conspiracy-oriented one. Uh, while I find them fascinating, unless, you know, it can really be proven I try and shy away from them because I don't want to be labeled as, you know, a tinfoil hat wearing crack art hot like that nut job Alex Jones and his gay frogs. So until next week, the Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay safe and stay morbid.